Few housing experts bring a greater diversity of experiences to their role than David Dworkin, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Housing Conference in Washington, D.C. Dworkin became the 17th leader of NHC in 2018 after a remarkable career that includes stints as a senior advisor at Treasury, a Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department, an executive at Fannie Mae, and a freelance war correspondent in Afghanistan. Daily, he puts his political and policy skills to use, guiding a multifaceted organization comprised of banks, trade unions, industry associations, consumer advocates, multifamily and single-family home builders, and yes, mortgage insurance companies to be the premier nonpartisan and unbiased voice for affordable housing in America. Well, David Dworkin, welcome to the uh, the Arch Mortgage Insurance Policy Cast. It's great to have you with us. And, and if we can, let's begin with just a little background about the uh, the National Housing Conference. You know, there's lots of, uh, of housing advocacy groups in Washington, D.C. What sets the NHC apart? Well, there are a lot. Um, we were the first. We were founded in 1931, and we were really brought together as the unlikely coalition of um, social uh, welfare advocates and labor unions and religious leaders and builders to say, we need to deal with this um, problem with slums. And half of the population of New York City actually lived in slums uh, in 1931. And uh, of course, we were at the raging early years of the Great Depression. People were losing their homes all over the country. We um, today are um, still an unlikely coalition. We have members from the most conservative parts of the industry and the most progressive parts of the advocacy world. And our commitment is to work together and to help bring people together to get things done. And, uh, and, and, and it actually is easier than it sounds and looks. Um, we have some significant differences, but we really agree on so many fundamentals. I think it's been um, really gratifying. And, and what do you think it is that is able to bring really divergent parties together like that? Well, we have a tremendous uh, shortage of affordable housing. Um, we have a broad affordable house, uh, housing affordability crisis in this country. And we, um, I think we really agree on a lot of the fundamentals. So um, the, our focus has been, let's focus on the things that we agree on. Let's try to work out the things we can work out and let's recognize we're not gonna agree on everything. And rent control is one of those issues. Um, there's very strong disagreements on that. And we were at a meeting in the Roosevelt room at the White House recently, and they wanted us to talk about that. and. We brought in, you know, a half a dozen groups again from the wide range of the political spectrum. <clears throat> we had a very constructive discussion. I wouldn't call it a debate. I mean, we were basically just saying, yeah, this is what we believe. This is what so-and-so believes. Um, we were not in agreement. But then we were able to just pivot from that and say, okay, so now let's go to the part of the agenda on things we agree on and um, focused on that. And, and there are a lot of them. At our first meeting in the Roosevelt Room, um, uh, Brian Deese, who was then the head of the NEC, identified 15 things that um, we agreed on, and he was shocked, frankly. 
you know, David, unaffordability, does, it, it plagues every sector uh, of housing. It's, it's a challenge for those wannabe homeowners. It, it's certainly a problem for, for renters. Uh, while cities and suburbs seem to get the most attention, it's a real crisis in, in rural America as well. Where do we begin to address the issue? Well, the foundation of the crisis is around supply. We are simply not building enough affordable housing. And I think that um, there's a, a range of estimates uh, that I've seen, but I think the most realistic um, reasonable range is somewhere between three and four million units of housing that need to be built uh, in order to take care of the needs we have now. And we're simply nowhere near that. In fact, since the Great Recession, we had such a huge deficit every year that the fact that we are building more this year and that we have a lot of projects uh, in progress, um, it's still a fraction of what we actually need. So we've got a long way to go. There are a lot of problems that spin off of that. And I think that um, uh, one of them clearly in the single family space is um, uh, the housing costs. Um, we had really skyrocketing housing costs prior to the COVID outbreak. Uh, we have had them prior to the increase in interest rates. Both of those things really exacerbated that. And uh, in the multifamily space, I think we also have some real um, dramatic shortfalls. And part of the problem is that in a lot of communities, there's either zoning that makes it much harder to um, create affordable housing. And when I say affordable housing, I mean housing that's affordable to the folks that work with us and we see every day in our neighborhoods. And um, it also um, is a, uh, um, interest rates have had a huge impact uh, more recently on um, housing affordability. Yeah, we, we've, we've certainly seen that the Fed has taken steps to, uh, to increase, you know, we're, we're at rates that are, that are double what they were a year ago. Um, Freddie Mac has done some, some studies looking at uh, mortgage-ready borrowers, and, and we learned that essentially there's, there's half as many mortgage-ready borrowers at 6% than there were at, at 3%. Uh, and it's really cutting uh, into the ability of people to get homes. What is the Fed doing right, or what is the Fed doing wrong in this approach? Well, I think the Fed's in a very difficult position because we do need to get inflation under control. Um, I think the Fed was slow to address inflation because it was hopeful that this was really pandemic related. Uh, I think that um, in retrospect, that was incorrect, that it wasn't just the pandemic and it wasn't going to cure itself. It's easy to have 2020 hindsight on that point. Once they did get engaged, um, they've been pretty aggressive about raising rates. Um, here's the problem in housing. When you have a demand-driven increase in housing prices, raising rates is a very easy way to cool that demand. But we have a supply-driven housing crisis right now, and shelter in inflation is a driving factor. And so when you raise rates, 
um, the demand is fairly fixed. It will come down a little bit, but mostly people are just going to be looking for a less expensive house that they can still afford. The prices are going to be driven by the supply shortage and now increased in interest rates are going to make it harder to actually build new housing. And what you end up with is it's it's like running on a treadmill. You're moving fast, but you're not going anywhere. And that's the problem the Fed has had in the shelter space. Now, if that contributes to broader economic problems that um, put us into a recession, lower uh, inflation, and shelter continues to be high and interest rates come down, then that'll um, work itself out. But I'm concerned that it won't. And I think that the Fed, you know, Elizabeth Warren likes to say the Fed has one tool in their toolbox. I actually think they have 10 tools. They all just happen to be a hammer. So they got about 10 different kinds of hammers. And um, when you need a screwdriver, you're looking in the toolbox and saying, well, will that claw work? And I think that we have to really recognize that um, when it comes to controlling inflation, we, we may have some outdated tools. So um, moving apart then from the Fed, policymakers across governments, whether it's the federal government or state government or local governments, uh, do have other tools to, to use that could help uh, stimulate housing supply. What do you yeah. think those are and, and are they being used the right way? So I think you're right. They, um, uh, there are a lot of tools that are not being well utilized. The, at the federal level, the biggest is the low-income housing tax credit, which is the most effective way that we've built affordable housing in this country for the last 30 years or so. We had a 12.5% increase in the LIHTC uh, allocation, which was allowed to expire. That's a big problem. And uh, so we basically, at the end of net last year, had a 12.5% cut in this very effective and significantly needed tool. And we had a bill that would have actually made it even more effective, and it wasn't passed. David, can you explain a little bit about how the LIHTC works? Sure. So the low-income housing tax credit um, was put in the 1986 tax reform bill, and essentially um, it creates a tax credit that um, gets awarded by the states. And if you get awarded one of these tax credits, you can sell them to companies so that they pay less in taxes and you get the equity from what you sold into your project. And so it, um, it allows for, it's basically a public-private partnership, but it makes it possible to build housing that's affordable to people below 80% of area median income and um, significantly below 60 and lower. It is comes with a restriction, which is when you build it using that equity, it has to have a uh, in, uh, income restrictions on it for at least 15 years and often 30. And, and that creates a stable supply of affordable housing. And, you know, I also like to say that um, any store you go into, everybody who waits on you, every waiter, um, every barista, um, anybody who delivers anything to your house for any circumstances, these are all hardworking people who easily make less than 80% of area median income. 
they're, they're the target population for the, the LIHTX. And on the single family side, there's new legislation called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. We focus on housing that's too expensive, but an enormous amount of the housing supply, uh, which we don't have enough of, is actually too cheap. It is the cost of building new housing in these communities or rehabbing existing housing is more than the property will be worth after the work is completed. And so the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act is a new tax credit that actually would help raise equity to close that gap. And I think that uh, this, both of these bills have bipartisan support and we'd really like to see them passed. Uh, and and in regard to that, while that would be a, a bit of a, a government subsidy for the builders, there would be economic, uh, positive economic contributions made in those revitalized communities, right? Absolutely. It creates jobs. It addresses the housing supply problem. It um, has a lot of benefits. Uh, it raises tax dollars. I think that um, on the federal level, uh, in, in addition to more federal spending and existing programs, and you know, when it comes to spending on affordable housing, my number is always more. Um, but these are programs that would really leverage the work that we're doing. The other thing is at the state and local level, we've really got to address this issue around um, uh, exclusionary zoning and um, also structures that uh, involve very high development fees. You know, in California, to build a single unit of housing of any kind, affordable or not, uh, you have to pay a, a development fee of over $100,000. And that makes it impossible to build a home, uh, whether it's rental or for ownership, that's going to be affordable to pretty much anybody um, uh, who makes below the area median income. Uh, do, do you see progress in communities permitting things like accessory dwelling units? There's a little of that. I think that um, there's an interest in showing uh, some reform and doing things on the margin. But unfortunately, we have a scenario where um, there's still enormous opposition to th anything that would have a material impact in uh, making neighborhoods more affordable. People just don't want affordable housing in their backyard. And I like to say, you know, if you don't want affordable housing in your backyard, you're going to end up with homeless people in your front yard. And you can just go to Los Angeles or Phoenix or uh, San Francisco or any number of places and see what that looks like. And it's not pretty. And it's enormous suffering right in everybody's face. And they feel uncomfortable about that. And, and frankly, they should because they're a part of the problem and need to be a part of the solution. Uh, many housing advocates are, are frustrated and, and even angry in some cases at the role institutional investors are playing in the single-family rental market. You have a more nuanced view of, of that, and I wonder if you could just kind of uh, chat a little bit about uh, your thoughts about uh, single-family rental. Well, you know, the old saying that real estate is all about location, location, and also location. And when you look at the single family rental market, you really have to look at individual markets where institutional investors are coming in and buying single family properties. Um, well, so my first question is, are they buying a property that was already being rented or not? But secondly, I'm interested in 
um, how diffuse their influence is. Is it concentrated in neighborhoods? And is it concentrated in neighborhoods that are higher income or lower income? Uh, many of these uh, business models really focus on middle and upper income rentals. And I think that that has a really minimal effect on uh, housing affordability. I think that um, where there is a high focus on lower income uh, and it's highly concentrated individual neighborhoods, it's a real problem. And, and we've got to address it. Uh, and, uh, and these companies really need to uh, diversify their business model. One of the things that we're interested in looking how this plays out is with higher interest rates, um, are these investments going to continue to be as profitable or given the high housing um, prices, will these investors start to sell into uh, the market? And in that case, uh, we strongly are encouraging them to sell to owner occupants. Uh, the, the, the build to rent market, is that something that's uh, a, a net positive? I mean, we need more rental housing and we need more housing for home ownership. So to be perfectly honest, if investors want to come in and, 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 and do build to rent, I'm 100% supportive. Um, they're not taking anything away from the home ownership market. They're creating new units. And down the road, these units may, may flip and become condos. Um, but as rental units, they're very nice quality and um, uh, are can be very attractive. So I, I am a big supporter of build to rent. Um, I'm a big supporter of build to own. Uh, again, I, I just want more housing that's affordable to more people. Uh, David, despite partisanship being at an all-time high in Congress, I think there's few policymakers who would disagree with, with any of us who would say that there, we lack sufficient uh, housing supply. But given the, uh, the, the tensions between Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate, uh, are, are you optimistic any of the proposals that you talked about a bit ago are going to pass? I am um, not optimistic, <laughs> but I'm not pessimistic. I am open-minded. I think I want to be honest about this. I, um, I was cautiously optimistic last year. The reality is, is that the Speaker of the House barely has enough votes to stay Speaker. So the idea that we're going to get bipartisan legislation is a long shot. It is not impossible. And so we're working very hard on these two bills in particular. I think that um, it makes sense for members of Congress to support this. We have already introduced the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act and Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which involves LIHTC is um, going to be introduced in, in the coming uh, weeks. And I think that it's a obvious way for members of Congress uh, to make a difference in something that all of their constituents are experiencing. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, you know people who are talking to you every time you go back home about you know their kids or friends or themselves who cannot afford to um, live near uh, where they work. The, the uh, Biden administration is making a concerted effort to reduce racial inequity in housing. One of the top goals when they, they came into office and, and subsequently Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have uh, come out with their equitable housing finance plans. Uh, the FHFA recently announced that they're eliminating upfront fees on, 
on many loans that would go toward low and moderate income borrowers and, and FHA just reduced their insurance premiums for, for housing. Uh, NHC has been active too in working with public and private sector organizations uh, in an effort called the Black Home Ownership Collaborative. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that effort, what you've done to date and what your future plans are. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, question. And we have been very involved in trying to expand uh, home ownership for people of color and in particular for Black Americans who um, during the Great Recession disproportionately lost their homes. And I would note that there's a false narrative that, oh, well, they were just given homes they couldn't afford and made irresponsible choices. Um, there's no question that some of that happened, but the reality is that most of them had good mortgages, that they got serially refinanced into toxic mortgages by mortgage brokers and others in their community who were looking to make a quick buck and um, their equity was stripped over a number of years until when the Great Recession occurred and uh, they had nothing to fall back on. So um, it's just one of many occurrences where um, uh, the Black homeowner, homeowner has been mistreated by the system. We need to address that. We want to expand Black homeownership because that's the growth market, because it builds wealth. It will help reduce the wealth gap, um, and it's good for our communities. And, and how are you going about doing that? We put together a group of um, major stakeholders in this, including the NAACP, the National Urban League, the Mortgage Bankers Association, and the National Association of Realtors, the National Fair Housing Alliance, uh, and the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, and the uh, Urban Institute has helped us with a lot of um, incredible research as well as Freddie Mac. We've developed a seven point plan to create 3 million net new black homeowners by the end of 2030. And that would get the home ownership rate well over 50%, uh, which would be historic. If we do nothing, Urban Institute has found that um, we will end up with no change in home ownership over the next uh, 10 to 15 years. And that means that um, we'll basically have made no progress since the uh, Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. I just think we can do a lot better than that. And it's in everyone's interest to address it. Now, I, I did see recently that we saw black home ownership rise during the pandemic. Is that a trend we should expect to continue? Well, it was very gratifying that we didn't have the kind of losses that we thought we would have. Um, there has been some increase in black home ownership, which is very encouraging, particularly during the period where interest rates were very low. Unfortunately, the um, with interest rates higher, uh, home ownership is less affordable to first time home buyers, particularly first generation home buyers. So I think we really have to double down and make sure that we're continuing to move that dial. But that's exactly what we wanted to see and we wanna see more of it. Well, most of my uh, policy cast podcast interviews have focused on home ownership. Homelessness seems rampant in, in much of American cities. Um, housing affordability is certainly a factor, but the pandemic, uh, mental health issues, drug abuse, are all contributing to making the problem. It seems worse than ever. 
What, what is NHC attempting to do to address some of these crisis issues? So you're absolutely right. And, you know, housing is a continuum. Um, when you have less home ownership, you have more renters. When you have more renters, you have higher rents. And when you have higher rents, um, people are pushed down the system. And at the bottom, more people become homeless. And there is no question that the lack of housing that's affordable to extremely low income families is a major driver of the increase in homelessness. And so we have got to address that. Um, creating more housing is the answer. Um, just, I don't wanna see 10 cities destroying neighborhoods. Um, I don't wanna see the need for 10 cities at all. I think that we've gotta do a much better job at funding shelter. Um, we need to help people get into housing and help them um, deal with the issues that they have. Um, frankly, if you lose your job and become homeless, um, it's not going to take very long for you to have serious mental health problems because any of us would have serious mental health problems as a result of being homeless. And so getting early intervention in place for people who are entering into homelessness is critical because one of the things we don't really see in the numbers of homelessness is that you've got people coming out of homelessness and you've got people going into homelessness. And so we're losing the net value of bringing people out of homelessness as more and more people go in. And early intervention is a critical way to avoid people from becoming homeless or staying homeless in the first place. Well, David, really, thanks very much for taking the time today, sharing your insights on the uh, the RHMI policy cast. Appreciate having you today. I really appreciate you and everything that RHMI is doing in the affordable housing space and uh, your critical part of the housing ecosystem, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.